G'day and welcome to Life's Lottery. Life's Lottery. A podcast from the Paul Ramsey Foundation, produced on Gadigal lands. I'm Glyn Davis. And I'm Jenny Whalen. In this series, we're talking about how we could better invest in our kids. I always knew that I was going to be a mum, but not quite as soon as when it happened. I was 15 when I fell pregnant, and obviously that was a huge, huge shock. Ebony's speaking today from her home in Hobart in Tasmania. I was lucky to have the support of my family, I'll say eventually, because, you know, falling pregnant at 15 is shocking. I was at a Catholic school in year nine, like that was not a part of the plan at all. There's no doubt that young people having babies face greater challenges than a lot of other new parents. And Ebony Curtis has a unique perspective to share. She's mum to four kids and also a board member of the Brave Foundation. Brave supports expecting and parenting teenagers throughout their pregnancy and through the first years of their child's life to connect young parents with education pathways with mentoring and parenting support. Mum had a hard time coming to terms with that and really wanted to try and just quickly fix the situation in whatever way she could, offering me all kinds of options. That was hard, but by 20 weeks pregnant, I had the support of everyone around me and, you know, started to celebrate that there was going to be a a new little life. So I enrolled her in daycare full-time at six weeks old and I was able to continue to stay at my Catholic school, thankfully. I remember expressing breast milk in the sick bay. (laughs) I lost a lot of friends and I had to find myself again because, you know, all of a sudden I didn't have anything in common with my peers. I was going home to parent a child (laughs) after finishing school at three o'clock. I wasn't going shopping or, you know, partying or anything like that at all. So I had more in common with my mum's friends than I did with my peers at the time. The first five years of a child's life are crucial to their long-term development and well-being. And children's progress is a key measure of how well a society is doing. But early childhood is no one government's responsibility in Australia. That's something the Thrive by Five campaign wants to change. And in this episode, we're talking to Jay Weatherall, the CEO of Thrive by Five. He's working to build support for a national, universal, early learning childcare system, something he says should be just a pram walk away from every home. Jay is a former South Australian government minister and premier, and he's advocated for better early childhood services for many years. Jay, this has been very much a personal journey as well as uh, an area of passion for you. You've spoken often about, as a member of the South Australian Parliament, becoming a minister in March 2004 with responsibility for Australian families. And just two months later, your first daughter, Lucinda, was born. Can you tell us why these two things coming together have been so profoundly important for you in your career? It was a a very big moment. It was a a massive portfolio to be given and then a, a few months later to have our first child. And, and that the two things really resonated with each other. I was learning so much about children, also children in very difficult circumstances, children with disabilities, children in the child protection system, and then to have my own child. And the more I learned about the way in which a child's brain develops in the first five years, the more it made me reflect on this this little life that we were nurturing at home. So 
Yeah, it was a it was a, a very uh, powerful period, and I suppose for me it shaped really the rest of my political career. I, I sort of became a bit of a a believer that those first five years was really the shape of everything that was to come, and a lot of the things that I got involved in politics to actually try and address, you know, disadvantage. You can trace back a lot of the answers to the questions in the first five years and what we do and don't get right in those first five years. So yeah, it was a it was a big moment for me, both uh, personally and politically. What is it that shifts the dial on reform? What is it that takes an area of passion and great ideas and actually translates it into meaningful, lasting reform? Yeah, well, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? You need more than a good argument because if good arguments carried the day, uh, we would have been doing a lot more on the early years than we than we have to this point because the arguments are impeccable. Uh, you need to create a, a movement for change and really... Even that isn't sufficient. You can shift the political process and create some momentum for change, but then you actually need something practical that can be consumed because there's also another power that exists in civil society, which is the public service, the bureaucracy, and and ultimately a minister who uh, wanders in to see a public servant and says, look, I'm getting a lot of heat about doing something on this question. Can we do something? And it's at that point you want a public servant to say, well, yes, Minister, uh, we've been doing a bit of thinking about this and this is what you do first and this is how much it's going to cost and this is what the benefits are going to be. So there are lots of different things that are necessary. You need more than just a quality idea. You also need a bit of luck as well. Sometimes not every good idea finds its time. You know, in that respect, I think we're at a bit of a moment in history in terms of the early years where we are seeing an above average amount of attention being paid just through circumstance. I'd like to follow that role of a minister slightly. You started as minister with responsibility for families. This became the role of minister for early childhood development. Can you say a bit about that transition, how childhood development came into the picture and in a sense how that changed your priorities? We were really assisted by some really amazing thinkers. The former Premier, Mark Rann, instituted this program called Thinkers in Residence, which is a great idea. You bring talented thinkers from around the world. We had two magnificent speakers. One was Fraser Mustard, who was a neuroscientist thinker from Canada. And uh, we also had the benefit of a woman called Carla Rinaldi, who was president of Reggio Children a little town in in northern Italy, which has pioneered for the last 60 years leading uh, pedagogy in in early childhood. Those two thinkers, really from very different perspectives, Fraser from a neuroscientific perspective, and just switching us on to this extraordinary development that occurs in the first five years, you know, the idea that you'll have every brain cell you'll ever have in your life uh, you're born with, and the real question is how they're connected and switched on through experience. And then, of course, Reggio Emilia, that, that out of the ashes of World War II, rebuilt a society based on essentially these early learning schools that they developed, which have become really exemplars and really inform a lot of practice now around the world in terms of the earliest. But philosophically, they said that children can learn right from the start and that it's this reciprocity between children, their natural environment, their teachers, their parents 
which is the way in which they construct futures for themselves. But we now know that that's backed up by the neuroscience, that it's these experiences that actually do make the connections that, that are so profound for future capability. So for me, my agenda became how do we create an early childhood development system? And so the first step in doing that was to create a minister for early childhood development, which we did. And I was very pleased to be able to be in that role. And you went on as Premier to support more than 100 centres for early childhood development and parenting across the state. So can you tell us how that program grew out of your experience as the Early Childhood Development Minister and your assessment in retrospect of that program and its impact? They very much emerged out of uh, Fraser Mustard's reports, one of his recommendations to create these children's centres It wasn't just about providing a a service to the child. It was also about engaging the family. And the idea was a one-stop shop uh, that was connected ideally to the, the education system, so on school sites typically. And the aim was to try and integrate a whole range of service systems that involve themselves in the lives of children in those first five years. So you could identify at least five service systems, infant maternal health, preschool, childcare, community and family support services, which are typically for the the adults and some of their issues in relation to parenting, and child protection. And to try and have a place at the level of the neighbourhood which was welcoming where parents uh, felt that they could have all of their needs met. And so we, we sought to construct these. The missing piece in the puzzle was childcare because we didn't have a partnership with the Commonwealth. So it was a little bit of occasional childcare, but not a fully integrated childcare system. But we, we certainly made a start on that. And the intention was to have uh, something which was accessible, high quality, accountable, and was easy for parents to navigate and non-stigmatising because it was sitting on a sort of universal platform. It meant that children from any family were welcome there and and it wasn't like we were trying to target services at a particular group of uh, families that might have been classified bureaucratically as disadvantaged. So I'd really like to come back to that issue of universal versus targeted systems and reforms in a moment, Jay, but What you're describing in uh, the South Australian state was a way of coordinating services and policies that in other jurisdictions in this country and we've heard around the world are often fragmented. And part of the step towards that was having a minister specifically responsible. Is that the kind of reform that you would advocate in other jurisdictions in Australia and even at the national level? We have heard calls for a children's minister federally, is is putting a minister responsible enough to drive that or does it does it take some other conditions to be right as well? I think it's necessary but not sufficient. Um, I think having a minister to coordinate all of these things is important, but it depends what sort of weight that minister has around the cabinet. It really needs the buy-in from first ministers. I think it needs the imprimatur of premiers and, and chief ministers and prime ministers And it does also raise the question of whether there's some functional and financial reform that needs to occur to actually aggregate some of these things, maybe at one level of government. And in the past, I've advocated for the states to be responsible for birth to the end of school and to actually be able to be the the accountable institution there. So I think there's inevitability about the states being joined at the hip with the Commonwealth in some of these areas. There are the family payment system, the childcare system, 
but I'm sure there is a better way of actually integrating those those systems of payments and supports so that you can get a rational integrated service system at the lowest level, which is consistent with the appropriate levels of quality and accountability. So I think yes to a children's minister, yes to a policy framework, but it probably is going to need a much heavier buy-in from somebody that's able to actually crack a whole lot of ministers' heads together. They get the health minister talking to the education minister, talking to the child protection minister to make this system work. I've known that I wanted to be a lawyer since I was in grade two. So I went to year 11 and 12 and graduated. I graduated with the intention to apply to do a law degree. In between (laughs) year 12 and uni, I fell pregnant again. And so I was 18. I just turned 19 when I had my second baby with my now husband. So I had a year off. I deferred uni for a year. My partner was a baker when I was at uni and so he would go to work in the early hours of the morning and come home and then take on a double shift essentially of taking on the parenting shift so that I could go to uni (laughs) because daycare fees, although the government subsidises some of it, when you have two children who require daycare, you know, and you're basically a one-income family. I mean, he was on an apprenticeship, so it just made things even tighter. And I wasn't working because I was studying full-time. It just was, like, not <laughs> not happening in between those few years. And I finally graduated at 25, <laughs> 36 weeks pregnant. <laughs> Let's hear more now from our guest, Jay Weatherall, the CEO of Mindaroo's Thrive by Five campaign. So I wanted to pick up that idea of universal platforms for service provision versus those that can target very specific need, particularly those experiencing the most acute end of disadvantage. We know the power of universal platforms. We also know about their advantages in macro policy terms. But we also have some universal platforms out there that are not addressing the issues of disadvantage. And here I'm thinking particularly of school education. We've had universal schooling for a long time, and yet uh, educational disadvantage is as entrenched as it's ever been, if not more so. What is it about the advocacy of universal platforms in early childhood compared to targeted platforms that you think makes the difference? I suppose the first thing is it's really not an either-or. There's an element in which Even with the universal platform, there'll be a need to identify children and families that have special needs. So that's the first question. I think most people would accept that if you could have both, if you could have a universal system and the more targeted services to those with extra needs, that that would be ideal. Where people tend to get driven is to say, well, look, if we only have a limited amount of resources, how do we target our support? That becomes the chain of reasoning. And one of, the, I think, the advantages that we've seen in the campaign that we're seeking to to run in relation to early childhood reform is by scoping in essentially a universal platform, you can build a much broader coalition for change, which can then generate the necessary political momentum, the movement for change, which is essential. If you talk about disadvantage, you, you can often see the public debate 
swing in some pretty unfortunate ways about characterising the families that, that are disadvantaged as being the authors of their own misfortune. Whereas most people accept the idea that, you know, all children need some degree of support, some children need more. So gifted children are as difficult to deal with in a system as as children with disadvantages. They they present different difficulties or challenges. And, and indeed the same child might be both gifted and also face challenges. So I think this idea that every child needs to have a universal offering, but some children need more, is a powerful political platform. The other sort of challenge is a practical one. Who are these disadvantaged children and how do you find them? And we sort of know that once you put a spotlight on families through the lens of disadvantage, some families will run away from that spotlight for natural fears about child protection responses or just the stigma associated with the notion of being labelled. Then there's another practical problem in that that is that some of these challenges don't manifest themselves until much later in a child's development, or or at least they don't manifest themselves in a way which is readily obvious to parents. And so the universal platform gives you the opportunity to see every child, essentially anybody that comes in contact with the child in the early years, whether it's an early educator or an infant maternal nurse. I mean, they might not be a child psychiatrist, they might not be a uh, some other form of paediatric specialist but they might be able to identify some of the early signs of the atypically developing child. And if the interventions can occur then in that context of the universal platform, we're more likely to get the changes that are necessary in partnership with parents. What we have to move away for is the notion of the diagnosis waiting list intervention model to a model which focuses on building the capacity of the system to identify early the support that's necessary for families and children. And I think there's a big challenge in this, and which is really the, the workforce and making sure that we have a workforce which is capable of engaging with, with children and families with that degree of sophistication. And, of course, that's one of the big challenges with our current service model. We pay very low wages and, and we have quite poor working conditions for some of the people that work in areas which, you know, arguably are the most profound areas of public policy that we have. And Jay, can I take you to one of those areas and one I know um, caused you grief as Premier, and that's child protection and more broadly the question of how the state deals and intervenes when families become dysfunctional and children are at risk. How should we think about these problems? And I know that every state has grappled with them. Are there better ways than the sort of standard Australian approach? I think this child protection is one of the great failed public policies that we've engaged in. The mandatory notification and the investigation removal paradigm, I think there's strong evidence to suggest that it really doesn't protect children in the way in which it should. And indeed, in some cases, you know, contributes to the traumatisation of those children. And I don't think that's got anything to do with the wonderful people that work in that system. I think child protection workers are some of the saints and angels that exist in our community. They put themselves in harm's way because they're usually the first people on the scene where when something goes wrong and they're also the first people 
that the finger of blame is pointed at when uh, they can't protect uh, every single child. So I don't want anything I say to be taken as a criticism of child protection workers because I think they struggle on in what is essentially a failed system. So, I mean, you only need to think about the statistics. Like we were getting up to one in four children with a child protection notification in South Australia during the period when I was involved in this area. There's a sort of basic absurdity about that, scoping in one in four children into your child protection system. That's because the threshold for notification is so low, yet the threshold for intervention is so high. So to remove a child from a family requires an extraordinary degree of substantiation, as it should. But the massive gap between those families that we scope into the child protection system and those that we have a tertiary intervention for means that there's a whole range of families we run the ruler over but don't really do anything for them. And that, that's got its own consequences. Now, those families that might have various challenges in terms of may simply be poverty, which is manifesting itself in, in what's perceived to be neglect or abuse, might be witnessing domestic violence, it might be a whole range of other challenges that might be going on inside that family, that would be much better dealt with in a universal system of early childhood development where children, I mean, one of the great paradoxes of our current system of of childcare is that the children of the families that would most benefit from it don't use it. And that's because it's the the world of work defines the entry points into this system. So if you have a chaotic relationship with the world of work, you don't get into the child care system. Yet that would be a protective environment in which children could be kept safe, parents could be engaged, and some of these challenges that are occurring in the lives of the adults which lead to the notifications could be more effectively dealt with. And we spend so much money on on child protection. It is an endless abyss. And the system, just every jurisdiction at any one point in time is going through some periodic crisis that exists in their child protection system that paralyzes governments and and ministers and uh, sucks in an enormous amount of time and attention. So having been at the centre of one of these storms, um, I sort of am very familiar with it. But um, if you're in government for long enough, unfortunately, you'll probably experience uh, two or three of them. And they threaten to be career-ending and they're almost always because such a temptation for an opposition to cause embarrassment and they're usually off the back of some awful tragedy that's occurred to a child in, in a family. But there is a massive systemic problem that we need to grapple with there. So, Jay, you are now tackling one of those big, thorny, complex issues from outside government as CEO of Mindaroo's Thrive by Five. Tell us about the Thrive by Five agenda. Well, simply to to make sure that children are thriving by the time they reach five years of age. 21 years ago, Nicola and Andrew Forrest started up a philanthropy called the Australian Children's Trust. And so initially they invested in disadvantaged children and it was grants. And then they became much more strategic investors in the early childhood area. So they did things like thought leadership, publishing uh, evidence papers. But I think where they arrived, this sort of similar journey to the one I was on, was quite frustrated with the pace of change and frustrated that you could keep putting this evidence in front of policymakers and now you know, smile sweetly at you and then go on and, you know, do something else. So that's when I arrived. And I had a similar experience in government. I put this on the COAG agenda. We'd get ahead of steam up and then something, the Prime Minister would change or 
some crisis would occur. So what really was born out of that was this notion of a campaign. How do we campaign to actually put this on the agenda in a way which is unable to be shifted? And, you know, that means putting pressure on the political process and making it essentially an issue that both major parties have to compete on and and generating taking this wonderful content that exists in a whole range of research institutions and trying to bring it in the public sphere and and make it campaignable. We're campaigning for a universal high-quality early learning system, which is, you know, shorthand for an early childhood development system. The arrowhead for the campaign is the childcare system, which is the touch point for many families. And one of the reasons why that idea works so well is it builds a coalition between the more highly educated women, who the system doesn't work for them because it makes it difficult for them to deploy all of their talents and skills, but it also works for disadvantaged women, the women that aren't connected to the world of work. You touched on earlier the complexity of Commonwealth state divisions of responsibilities and the difficulty of creating a universal platform when authority is shared. How does the Thrive by Five campaign address this sort of fundamental constraint? The way the campaign has been constructed is first to ask that you know, critical strategic communications question, what's the problem? What's broken? What needs to be fixed? And the solution, of course, falls out of the problem, which is that no level of government actually is responsible for birth to five. Everybody's got a little bit of it. And there's an enormous amount of duck shoving that goes on between each of the systems. I mean, one simplistic approach is simply to transfer all of the functions to one level of government. I think that has its challenges, but I'm convinced there's a mechanism by which we could have an integrated service delivery system, which I think has to be at the state level, address some of the market failure issues which are inherent in the the current uh, system design but at the same time, you make sure that, that we've got a, a properly resourced system. So what, what would be a disaster if the Commonwealth said, oh, okay, you can have your childcare and, and then the states and territories just had to just deal with it themselves and you'd find the richer states would do a good job and that some of the states with fewer resources would potentially retreat, especially under budget pressure. Being 15 and being basically a child yourself. I mean, you're not regarded as an adult. Navigating the system is a huge thing. I remember I couldn't even open a bank account for my daughter that I could put savings into because I wasn't 18. I could open a bank account for myself, the youth sailor, but not one for her because I wasn't 18. I couldn't sign my own lease moving out of home at 17. My mum had to co-sign on my behalf. Even though I was paying for these services, I had a $1,000 daycare bill because no one explained to me how to get child subsidy, (laughs) childcare subsidy from Centrelink. And another thing that comes to mind too was transport. You know, obviously if you're 15 and pregnant, you don't have your driver's licence. You can't, it's not like you can take your child to school yourself. So yeah, for me, transport was a huge issue before I got my licence. You know, catching a bus with a child in a pram and trying to navigate how to get your child to childcare before you get yourself to school and all of those things. So I was very lucky to have the support of my mum. That's why having someone who can help you navigate that system is extremely vital and that's why I accepted a position as a director on the board of the Brave Foundation. The Brave Foundation have a program called 
concept and it's supporting, expecting and parenting teens. And basically there is a a person called a mentor who accepts participants onto their program, whether that be a teenage mum or dad, both are eligible. They set them up with goals, with a pathway. could be as simple as getting a routine for your baby or it could be something as dramatic as applying for uni or finishing uni or setting up a pathway to achieve goals for these young people to help them thrive, help their children thrive. So now I'm having 12 months off at the moment because I've got a 10-week-old and going to go and do my prac next year back at UTAS, and then I'll be admitted to the bar officially as a Tasmanian lawyer. I'm just really trying to slow down and enjoy my children <laughs> for these 12 months before I have to go and work for the rest of my life. But I love motherhood, you know. I think I am lucky. I do feel like it comes naturally to me. I don't think I could imagine my life any other way. I didn't expect to be 26 with four children, <laughs> but I wouldn't change it for the world. Ebony Curtis, a board member of the Brave Foundation and a mother of four. We hope she has a great 12 months off work and study. One of the consequences of Australia's response to the COVID pandemic was an experimentation with a different form of childcare provision, which for a short period of time made universal childcare free. Can we draw any lessons from that about the future? Yeah, I think we can. I mean, if you ask providers, they'll tell you that a bunch of people turned up to their childcare centres that didn't usually come, which is fascinating in itself. So Aboriginal children, children from disadvantaged families. And that's sort of interesting because what's sometimes said is, well, those families actually could if they applied for the special benefits that exist for disadvantaged families still get there by paying of quite a modest fee. But what was interesting is that it's some of the non-financial barriers that also are keeping them out, some of the tests and, and hoops they have to jump through. Also remember that people in these disadvantaged families, you know, they read the papers, they watch the TV, they've seen the threats about people going for jail if they don't get the numbers right on their, their Centrelink sort of forms. And so there are, you know, there's some powerful disincentives for people to get engaged in some of these systems. So I think we did learn something about accessibility. And for that brief period, it was obviously not sustainable because while it was billed as free in inverted commas, it really meant that it was cross-subsidised by the services. They had to pick up the loss associated with that. So that was made up with JobKeeper for a little while, but the sums didn't really balance for some services. But nevertheless, it gave us a bit of a glimpse about what the future could look like. If we turn, Jay, to talk a bit about the role of philanthropy in Australia. So your foundation, Mindaroo, and ours, the Paul Ramsey Foundation, are part of a new era of philanthropy in Australia that stands on the shoulders of the giants of, of all of those who've come before us, but take distinctive but complementary approaches to tackling some of these big, complex issues of public policy. And I wonder if you might look into the future a bit. If philanthropies in Australia get it right, what do you think we should see in the role of philanthropy in 20 years in this country? I mentioned before this idea of just handing out grants to worthy causes. That's one approach. There's the more strategic philanthropy, which is trying to invest in those things that government can't or won't to try and cause change, having regard to a very clear strategic vision. So not so much responding to unsolicited bids for support, 
but rather trying to drive something with a very clear change. And that's sort of where I think we probably are at the moment. I think what's emerging for us is some more activist philanthropy. One of our advantages is that we have live benefactors, and so they're actively involved. They're actually participants in the dialogue and the debate, and they can make very quick decisions which relieves us of some of the constraints about the processes that might be necessary for other philanthropies. So that I think is is interesting. But this idea of the activist philanthropy, which is try is campaigning for change, is, you know, an interesting model. But also the way in which some of the deep long-term research about impact which can inform systems change, which I know Paul Ramsey is is famously involved in in supporting, I think is very powerful because, you know, ultimately people are going to want to see what the value is for return on taxpayers' dollars. And this is notoriously a, an area where there's quite a lot of imprecision about the measuring of outcomes. And because the outcomes are such long-term outcomes, there does need to be significant longitudinal studies. But I think introducing that rigor into the social services system that we probably have seen in the in the health system in the past, but probably less so in some of the areas of social services, I think is a really powerful role for philanthropy. What does success look like for Jay Weatherall and Thrive by Five? Well, universal high quality early learning system where we have a welcoming place for, for not just mothers with babies, but but expectant mothers be a source of information and support, a pram walk away from every home. And there'd be real capacity. The people that would be working there would love their jobs, they'd be well paid. And over time, they would build up such a knowledge base, not just about children generally, but about that community. You know, and you'd see children going back and maybe even bringing their children back. You, you see that a bit in schools, in local communities. But if there was a, a counterpart system of early childhood development, ideally on a school site, if that could be everywhere, I mean, for me, that would be success. That's Jay Weatherall from the Thrive by Five campaign. You've been listening to Life's Lottery, produced by the Paul Ramsey Foundation in partnership with UTS Impact Studios. Head to lifeslottery.com.au to find out more about this episode and please do leave us your comments and feedback. And next week, a special episode as we hand over the microphone to Leela Smith. Leela is the CEO of the Aurora Foundation and a Wiradjuri woman with a background in Aboriginal health and education. She leads a conversation that focuses on what our First Nations children need to reach their full potential. Life's Lottery is produced in partnership with UTS Impact Studios. Executive producer, my auntie Olivia Rosenman. Audio producer, Nicole Kirby. Researcher writer, Jackie May. Audio engineer, James Milsom.